Swords, Sorcery, and Socialism, a podcast about the themes and politics hiding in our genre fiction. As always, I'm Darius, and with me I have my co-host, Catho. How's it going, Catho? Howdy. We are back at it today with another classic of terrifying children's literature, Watership Down by Richard Adams. This is a book written in 19... 19- 72 and adapted into an even more terrifying movie in 1978. Uh, It's a classic. It is fantastic. I read it as a child and loved it. Figured it was time to come back to it. Had you read it uh, previously? I had not. I had not. I knew of the movie. I knew that it was based on a book, but I, my impression because I hadn't really looked into it much was that the movie and the impression that people gave me of the film was like that this was a that this was not a children's story or at least wasn't intended to be one in any way like like to me when i heard about it i was like oh this is like a classic like dark novel that just uses anthropomorphized rabbits um just because that's the impression that some people gave me off of watching the film and then explaining to me that they had nightmares um, so I, th- I think this directly, I think, relates to last week's episode about on fairy stories and that this is a classic example of not watering down your story for children and that letting children deal with sort of heavier themes and such. Because this story um, in to me is a, uh, a very close echo of of Brian Jake's writing Redwall. The author explains, Richard Adams explains that he had been in the habit of telling his daughters stories whenever they went on car rides because it was the seventies and people didn't have anything else to do. (laughs) Yeah. My parents would talk about it. They're like, Oh yeah, we were kids on Sundays. We just drive around. And my my parents lived in completely different places, but their parents still did the same thing. Took them in car rides around in the early seventies. I'm like, what the hell? Just toodle around and look at stuff. Just drive around. The windows up. Someone smoking a cigar, as God intended, Mm -hmm. as Lord Frith intended. Uh, So he he explains that he was in the habit of like telling his daughters stories in the car, and then at one point they had to make like a hundred mile trip in the car, which in the UK I assume means they went from from like London to, you know, to like Edinburgh. It's probably like the entire length of the UK or something. (laughs) It's a little bigger than that, but yeah. um, So he had a hundred mile trip and his daughters, he said he sometimes told them stories that were classics and sometimes he made up stories and his daughters for this trip specifically requested that he tell them a story they hadn't heard before that he invent one for this trip. And the story he invented was the majority of what became Watership Down. Uh, he said he didn't finish it on that trip. And then for a while afterwards, every night at bedtime would tell them a little bit more. And his daughters were the ones that, according to him, his daughters were the ones that told him, Dad, this is too good for you just to keep for us. You should write this down. And he was like, eh, seems like. A lot of work. Yes. Seems like it's unnecessary. 
but apparently his daughters and his wife essentially badgered him into writing it down. And one of his other friends who he talked to, like told him like, no, dude, this is pretty good. You should write this down. And so he did. He eventually wrote it all out into a novel and then began shopping it around at publishers. And again, relating to what we said at the start of the episode, a lot of publishers were like, like turned it down thing. Like, nah, this isn't they're like, it's not right. It's too dark for little kids, but older kids won't want to read stories about bunnies. And he was like, he was like, no, nah, I think it's fine. And he kept shopping it around until he found one very specific small publisher who had published a different, like a different, like fairy tale type story recently. And he's like, well, if that guy, if he published that, he might publish my book. And so the original publication run was like very limited because it mm-hmm. came from a small publisher who couldn't afford to do more copies and it sold out rapidly. Mm-hmm. And the small publisher was like, I'm this is as fast as I can make them. And then eventually he got, got picked up by one of the major American publishers and it blew up in the U S. So in the introduction, the author joked that Watership Down actually sort of got imported to the UK from the U S because <laughs> his story blew up faster in America than it did in the UK, partly through distribution problems. Yeah. I actually wasn't totally expecting it to be as British as it was painfully british <laughs> well i mean so just so everybody knows i listened to the audiobook um read by peter capaldi which should be familiar to anyone who's watched post you know 2000 and what 2007 doctor who he was um, the doctor for a little while wasn't he it was he was the doctor for uh was he the one with the ang- was he the one with like the big angry eyebrows yes okay i see his big angry eyebrows he had clara for his clara clara british accents um I, for a while. You told me you listened to that one. So I intentionally listened to a different audio narration because I like to have us listen to slightly different versions because sometimes narrators will pronounce words differently or say things differently. Uh, and I think that's fun to have that. Uh, mine was narrated by Ralph Kasham. I don't know who that is. <laughs> he's, he's, he's just a, a British guy. And so, uh, but he went all in on giving different people's uh, different accents, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, The humans at the end, their West country accent is so strong as to be almost indecipherable. Oh boy. They remind me of uh, the farmer from hot fuzz who has like a sea mine in in his shed. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I know. The one they, who's like, okay, yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the humans in this book are full on like, watch you do it, Amyar. Like they're like, it's, I can't even do it. I won't even pretend they're, they're West country. It's West country and it's heavy, heavy accent. Yeah, no, Capaldi never went that heavy. The, the he also one for Capaldi oh, was the little uh, field mouse. Yeah. What which, accent did he give the field mouse? It was hard to place like there's a little bit of i i don't want to say like middle eastern because kashim i think made them like russian no i mean like, kashim made them sort of russian and my other favorite was kashim made kihar the seagull very scandinavian <laughs> like kihar was like humans in them port they get in port 
come down, look side of, look side of river. <laughs> like he gave him this very, like, yeah, you know, very sort of Scandinavian inflection and all of his bees were peas. He called them pigwig, all this other sort of stuff. It's fantastic. The seagull <laughs> is like the seagull's Swedish. <laughs> we listen to different ones because for that, for those sort of fun things, I would, I will, I might listen to the Capaldi one for a little bit, just so I can listen to Capaldi have to pronounce El Ahrara. Oh, he does a pretty good job with the the. He's like elachra, elachra, like he does. He he does it really well, way better than I can. So it's like <laughs> like that, and then the way he's he, the way he just completely seriously stone faces rududu, um, absolutely kills me because because he rolls the r. Rududu. Rududu is a great word. We're gonna get to. I, we've gone off on a tangent, but we're gonna get to the rabbit language because it's fun. Uh, so for anyone who, um, again, I feel like everyone should probably know this book by now. It's a bunch of, it's a group of rabbits who live in a warren. One of them, Fiverr, has a vision of the warren being destroyed. Uh, it's like, y'all, we need to get, we need to get the fuck out of here. And only a few uh, rabbits like agree and think that, yes, this is, we believe you. This is a good idea. Uh, they go through a series, uh, just a, it kind of reminds me of like the Odyssey, in Whoa. that, like, it's just a constant series of, like, overcome this trial, overcome this trial, overcome this trial. Over, it, It's like you go point A to point B, there's well, going to be a problem. Well, Alakrava is, in a lot of ways, like, he's both presented as a trickster god and there's, like, a weird element of, like... Odysseus. Odysseus to Alakrava. Yeah, so the rabbits... We'll get in the Pantheon and Alakra in a minute. So anyway, they go from point A to point B. They overcome many troubles. They eventually find a place, which would be great for a Warren. And then they realize they have a problem, which is that all of them are dudes. Um, and they're like, we have we have no bitches. Uh, how, how solve? And then like the back, I don't, I, don't, I don't know by size, either back half or back third of the novel is just the search for more bitches. And the, tr- and, the, and the trouble that comes with that. Yeah, part three and four are all, let's find some bitches. It's part, all like, yeah. part one, the boys go on an adventure. Part two, that feeling when no bitches. How much trouble will you put yourself through to get laid? A lot, apparently, if you're a rabbit. Yeah, you'll get like shot and run over by a train. Yeah, you, you get shot, infiltrate an authoritarian state just to break the prisoner population out. Me and the me and the boys busting into North Korea to rescue them. Me and the boys busting into North Korea to rescue the women because my country ran out of women. That's so fucked. <laughs> We're going to hell for that. It's okay. <laughs> oh, it's good though. So, um, I've decided uh, at the beginning of every uh, episode, or when we start like a new book, we need to put it through. Run it past two screens, two test screens of the rules we've come through. Uh, we've cut, co- we've come across over the last couple episodes. These are the the, the Le Guin and Tolkien tests. Le Guin test is it sci-fi? This test uh, is is it a thought experiment? Pretty much, <laughs> more or less. Are you doing a thought experiment? So that determines whether or not it's sci-fi. Uh, this book is not not sci-fi. Yeah, very clearly not. Second test, is it fantasy or is it fairy? I should say it's, it's, it is fantasy, but is it a fairy story? Is it as fairy? Tolkien, yeah, it's a fairy story as Tolkien would say. Well, I mean, it is fairy, at least up until the end where they get the women. 
Um, hey. So then it goes to sort of all those standards we talked about last week, which, in which case I'm not sure, but I think Tolkien would say no, because I think he would just call this a beast story, but I'm not entirely sure. So I wanted to run it by you. This, I think I sent a thing to you a while ago. I was like, this is a high fantasy story in low fantasy clothing where the rabbits as they are, this is essentially its own self-contained reality. Like we know that rabbits don't actually behave like this or have like myths, but I guess we don't really know, but, uh, (laughs) but we can assume. (laughs) But it also does clearly take place in our reality. Yes. In our world. It's not a separate world from ours. But there's this own, but there's this layer of mythos. I don't know. This is a really hard one. Yeah, I, I don't. Probably, am, I'm not as big of a stickler as Tolkien, so yeah. I would call it fantasy. But well, he, yeah, I would definitely <laughs> call it fantasy. I'm, I'm wondering if he would classify it as fairy story. Again, these are arbitrary, and I just think it would be fun to run any book we read through this little gauntlet at the start, mm-hmm. just because. I, like, I'm honestly probably with you. I think he, he would, I think he would appreciate the attempt at a language. Yes, probably. Um, I think what I think what I think his interpretation of this would be is what we call low fantasy. Like we would call it low fantasy, so he wouldn't de- describe it as a fairy story. But I don't think he would like be dismissive of it because, again, it follows. We've already mentioned it does a lot of the things that he enjoys, which is like you know doing a mythos and having language and like telling a story that is impactful, has a lot of heart, has a lot of hope. There is, there are lots of moments of like rest and recovery in here, like throughout their adventures where they do a thing and then they get to rest and they do a thing and they get to rest. There's a lot of that in here. Um, and also, again, it doesn't water down any of its messages for children mm-hmm. when Pete, when rabbits just be getting snatched all the time. Oh, dang. I was about to be like, maybe Tolkien knew about this. Now he could, like, he died the year after this book came out. Yeah. So he probably was not aware. Um, anyway, again, those not really important. I just think it'll be fun to run every book through the ringer. Just the Gw- Le Guin's ringer is a lot uh, shorter. Oh yeah, <laughs> she's a lot less um, super persnickety about it. She's a lot less cant- cantankerous than the professor was. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Watership Down. Let's talk about some rabbits. Which also the rabbits distinguish themselves from hares. Hares are different than rabbits, which is also a throwback. Uh, to me, to Redwall, where the ha- where there are hares, and they get very angry if you call them rabbits. <laughs> Which, to me, as a child, didn't make sense. I thought rabbits and hares were essentially the same thing. There's clearly, a lot of clearly lot they're of not line, like through lines between this but, and Redwall. I wouldn't be I would not be surprised if this had some influence on Brian Jakes when he was doing his storytelling, like because the, there's like prophecies. Sears, Sears uh, and visions. Um, mm-hmm. Now the rabbits in Watership Down are rightfully run away from a badger and don't worship them. Yeah, well, in, in Redwall, badgers aren't predatory, so that's super bizarre. Which because they're omnivorous, right? Like they'll eat pretty much anything. Yeah, I mean they say in the book that a badger if it happened to catch a rabbit would eat one, but most of the time they're too slow or don't bother mm-hmm. or they'll eat rabbit babies or whatever. Uh, this one is much more uh, uh, close to what actual animals are like in mm-hmm. terms of their like food stuffs. Yeah. Cause they run into um, a badger. Like that's yeah. Like in the, the first, first things woods. they run into. Like, yeah, they, yeah. 
and they said you can always smell them, but and it just eat so that it doesn't chase them. What do you want to talk? What do you want to talk about first? You want to talk about you want to talk about seers and prophecy first? Do you want to talk about leadership? What do you want to talk about? Well, I mean, they both serve really strong central functions in the narrative here. I would say the seers and prophecy thing is more of a a like a plot motivator. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that has important implied text, whereas leadership is more of a fundamental central tenet of the story in terms of like the themes and what it's trying to say. Okay, well, we can, let's start there then. So in the story, every rabbit Warren is described as having essentially having a chief rabbit. Um, the rabbit that makes decisions for the whole Warren. But it also says right off the bat that this can be the actual, like the way the role functions depends entirely on the Warren and the personality of said rabbit. Mm-hmm. So some are more authoritarian, some are much less authoritarian, some have to dictate everything, some don't do much at all. It depends on the Warren and the rabbit and that sort of thing, which is an interesting take on leadership. Like, it's not that the role is defined societally by the rabbits, it's that it is more the, the person in the role that defines sort of the the bounds of the role and like mm-hmm. what the what the other rabbits will tolerate. And this is, I think we get sort of three points along the line here um, or three major ones, at least along this sort of line here from what I want to call sort of authoritarian chief rabbit to as close to non-hierarchical as you can be while still being chief rabbit. (laughs) So on the one end, you have our main character. You have Hazel. Hazel is mostly pretty chill. Hazel's default go-to for almost any interpersonal conflict is mediation and like peace and problem solving by and large, right? Like Hazel's go-to for like solving anything is let's hear both sides. Let's hear it out. Let's work through it. Or in case of more active things by leading by example, Hazel is also often like, well, if we need to do this, I'm going to do it first. To show that it can be done, because I won't ask them to do anything that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. The other main characteristic of Hazel's leadership is letting other people take charge. (laughs) Passing out responsibility to those who have the most uh, to give in that moment. You know, they have like, oh, fighting needs to be done, or we need to do some like tactic stuff. Let's talk to Bigwig or Captain Holly. Uh, we need to solve some sort of like, what do I call it? Mechanical problem that's beyond the reasoning of most rabbits. I think it's Blackberry. Yeah, Blackberry. Blackberry. <laughs> um, oh man, that's a uh, like, funny implication. Uh, only from the future, looking back. It's like Blackberry, you can solve this sort of thing. You're the smart one here. What do you have to say about it? And or now, Fiverr. and now Blackberries are the dumb phones. Oh my god. I haven't thought about a BlackBerry phone in years. I had one. Oh my God. Um, Awful. (laughs) So Hazel sort of distributes leadership and responsibility to the people that seem to be most suitable for handling it in most situations. Um, Even coming down to, are the vibes of this plan bad? Fiverr. 
does this plan have good or bad vibes? Fiverr, you're always objectively correct. We should probably just listen to you. Fiverr has actually never been wrong. <laughs> never. <laughs> never. Um, or uh, to, to, to throw it back to, uh, other, to other Tolkien nerds, we call this the, the Melian problem. To be always right and to have no one listen to your advice ever. So that's on one end of our leadership scale. Uh, in the middle, I think we have, or a little past the middle, we have the chief rabbit of the warren that they come from, mm-hmm. um, whose name I don't remember. Uh, uh, I, I don't really think they give him a specific name. He has a title that's like Threra or something. Threra or something like that. The, th- the, thre- the Threra. It's the chief yeah. rabbit of their home of their original home warren. Yeah, but he, they he, never give him a name. He's just chief yeah. rabbit. So the Threra, he like, he's old. Number one, but it seems to be a little in the middle where like most people are generally left alone, but like his, his Ausla, his like soldiers can be a bit domineering uh, to the other rabbits. Uh, Everyone seems to to generally tolerate it. I think his dismissiveness comes more from the fact that he's old. Yeah. He's just old and doesn't, he doesn't want to take any risks anymore. Uh, He's got more of like, I've lived through this. I've lived through that. I don't think I'll live through whatever comes next to type deal. And then on the other, sorry, go ahead. Oops. I just said oops. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. Not. And then on the opposite and the far other end from Hazel, you've got general wound wart. Whose go-to is I'm going to beat the shit out of you. If you don't do exactly what I say, the second I say it, I will kill any of you at any time for any reason. And that's, his entire leadership strategy. Now we can go into the fact that his backstory is given to us and it's bad. And the author tells us that he got this way partly because he believed it is the single best way to protect his Warren from being destroyed. Most especially by humans. Most specifically by humans. However, the author does also tell us that he has made a lot of these decisions because he's just a power hungry dickhead. Yeah. It's funny because like in one sentence, he'll be like, ah, yes, I, I need to protect everyone. Yes. And then the next one, it's like, "Mm." like, like describing his backstory at least. Uh, And then then the next one, it's like, he became this way because he was a power hungry asshole, Uh, which I I find funny because I feel like it should almost be the other way around. If you really wanted, if he obviously didn't really want to make him that sympathetic, but if he did like the, the route would have been to be like, he did this to protect people. And because he did this to protect people, it turned him into this. Yeah, he became this like this dictator. But it it kind of makes it out that he, yes, was doing this to protect people, but also uh, always wanted to be a dictator. He always just kind of was this way. Yeah, <laughs> just, just like kind of was a giant asshole. Like, yes, he did it to protect the Warren. Yes, he did it because he thought it was best. But also, yes, he just kind of wanted to be a dick. (laughs) So like you have these, these sort of opposite ends of leadership styles of, you know, of Hazel and Woundwort. The author clearly comes down on Hazel's side. Obviously it's the the protagonist, but I think it's an interesting lesson for us to pull the fact that even in a system that has a one rabbit hierarchy, (laughs) I mean, Technically, I guess the Ausla are like a level in between, but like you've basically got rabbits and the chief rabbit in Hazel's Warren in Watership Down. Hazel's style of 
using his power as chief rabbit is essentially to devolve his authority to everyone else who's better at it than he is in every given situation. And I think I th- as, you know, as anarchists, I think that's an interesting lesson to pull from someone who was explicitly not writing <laughs> any sort of like political polemic here. Yeah. Yeah. This was, this was explicitly, well, I suppose he doesn't say it's a, he he rejects the idea that it's a story for children, but um, specifically, but even though he invented it for his children. Well, yeah, no, I'll, I can pull up the quote. Um, like I said, because I had it on audiobook, I have to pull up the quotes on something else. Um, yeah. I've always said that Watership he, Down is not a book for children. I say it is a book, and anyone who wants to read it can read it. Um, yeah. Which. Pretty- which is good. Yeah. But, so like I'm saying he wasn't like writing a political text. No. But again, as we as we do, what we can pull here is the fact that he clearly thinks a more um, unobtrusive, devolved leadership style is preferable. Mm-hmm. And he goes out of his way to contrast um, Hazel and the other chief rabbits, but also Hazel and other rabbits in his warren as to why Hazel is looked up to and, you know, respected the most, uh, especially with Bigwig, uh, where the two of them are pretty often put in scenarios where Hazel will say one thing, Bigwig will say another, and then Bigwig will just do the thing anyways, <laughs> because Sometimes. he's Bigwig. Um, and then something bad happens because Bigwig was thinking too small and too much about himself, like the Fox thing, which was kind of kind of bad and kind of good. It did it did kill one of the Efferfin officers? Yeah, the thing is, is that they like when he first came back, they didn't know yeah, like, that it was an officer, like that was one of the patrols. So they were like, uh, "Did you just get a random rabbit killed because you were so confident that that fox could not hurt you that you just ran into the reeds and ran smack dab into more rabbits?" It's like, dude, stop thinking about yourself. <laughs> I mean, it happens after they left Ephrafa on the way back to their thing where they stop somewhere and Blackavar is like, this is a bad place to stop. There's Fox around. And Begwig is like, shut up, nerd. Yeah. <laughs> we'll sit here if we want to. And then like six hours later, one of them gets e- one of the does gets eaten by a fox. Yeah. And Begwig is like, OK, yeah, maybe you were right. Um, this actually that's Bigwig's whole arc is like not listening and then being convinced that the person he should have listened to is right. It happens with Hazel. It happens with Fiverr and it happens with black where they all say, maybe don't do the thing. And he's like, nah, you yeah. nerds. You it's fucking really funny nerds. because back, back in their hometown and their home Warren, he was the one who had the most authority out of all. Of them. Yeah. Because he was in the Oslo. Like yeah. he, he, he had authority and this comes to a head, I think, in the sort of the final showdown when Woundwart and Bigwig are fighting in the tunnels. And again, like Woundwart and his whole style is that the biggest, strongest, fiercest, meanest rabbit is in charge. And he's instilled that in his entire warrant. So when he and Bigwig are fighting and it's like kind of a stalemate, kind of Bigwig wins. And Woundwart's talking to him. Bigwig says, my chief rabbit told me to stay here mm. and I will until he tells me otherwise that like quite literally shocks all the enemy rabbits because in their mind, the only thing they can imagine is a rabbit bigger and stronger and meaner than Bigwig. 
and not the one that walked out to them earlier and was like, hey, let's make a communal uh, borough together and work together. And they were like, what? <laughs> a what? I, yeah, so like Hazel had talked to Bigwig not hours before, but Hazel's like partly isn't the biggest, is partly lame from getting shot. And so they just, they, the Efferfin rabbits simply cannot comprehend that there is a different kind of leader than the biggest and strongest and fiercest. And I th- I'm pulling this out now. That's an important lesson when we're looking at the world today and sort of our government, human government, is that I think one of the problems we have when sort of when you're getting into arguments, when people are asking about, oh, well, how would anarchists organize X or how would anarchists organize Y? Part of the problem you have when talking to people that aren't familiar with our with the theory of it is that they they've never seen organizations other than the one they're in. So they can't picture it just as the Efferfin rabbits can't picture a chief rabbit that isn't the biggest and meanest and strongest. I think a lot of people can't picture a world without a government that is the biggest and meanest and strongest. That makes sense. Like, or without, you know, the, like capital essentially dominating our lives in every way it possibly can. The biggest, meanest, strongest chief in the world right now is capital, right? (laughs) Pretty much. Capital is the chief rabbit. Um, And so I, 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 again, I think it's this idea of sort of like the scope of what you can imagine. And I think we run into that when talking to people sometimes is that it's not that they couldn't believe in it or follow it because after Woundwort is gone. Numerous Efferfin rabbits join Hazel's Warren, right? And they eventually do form this sort of shared Warren halfway between the two. Which, which I do find, you know, I do find it funny. And we did kind of mention it off beforehand. Oh, yeah. But like, it's it's a little bit like, oh, I tried to kill you, but I was just, I was just following orders. Just following orders. Like the rabbit's like hiding his like Nazi flag in the background, like trying to stand up in front of it and hide it. Like, There's oh, a little yeah. bit of that because... Woundward is like, we're going to kill these rabbits. And the, his officers are like, all right, deal. Then Woundward dies and they realize they lost. And they're like, look, Woundward was real scary. I didn't mean it. <laughs> I didn't mean it. Hitler told me to. I had, I couldn't say no. Rabbit Hitler told me. So well, like, I there's a little bit of that. But, what I, but my point was just that once they are presented with an alternative and become an I, like accustomed to seeing it in action, they understand it. But until that until they see it in in action it's hard for them to to picture mm-hmm. this thing that's outside of what their imaginations has ever like reached for and and that scene is actually speaking of bigwig that scene is actually really uh like important in general i think like as like a closing character arc for him where he the moment when he's like oh if i die my body is big enough that it'll at least be a roadblock for them to get further down. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, wow, he's sick of everybody else now. <laughs> yeah, it is, because he finally, like, it's not that he was completely selfish, no, but he no, kind of no. was, the more or less, up to that point. And you're right, in that moment, he's like, oh, I'm defending everyone behind me, and even if I die, my body will delay them even longer for my chief who's somewhere else doing the doing the plan to like succeed. Yeah. Getting the dog, which gotta be honest. It's a wicked plan. Oh yeah. We're just going to grab a dog from somebody's house. We're going to like, we're going to go 
get one of our most vicious predators and lead him on to our enemies. That's uh smart. With the, uh, with, with uh, the only display of humanity in the entire, um, is that in that scene towards the end what? there? The humans? Yeah, the humans. It, totally it's right after that. Be- it's right after that because after Hazel releases the dog, the cat catches him and then the, the daughter saves him. Yeah, it's like the one moment of, of humanity. And of it, humans, humans not being shit. Yeah, humans not being like awful. And the, the daughter saves him and the dad's like, I don't know what you want me to do with it. And the daughter's like, I don't know, I just want to show him to the doctor because I like the doctor. And they're like, okay. And then the doctor's like, yeah, he'll be fine. You, you want to let him go? Out? You want to let him go outside? We can put it. We can take him a little ways away so your dad's not mad. And the girl's like, "Sure." And then they let him go like real close to the watership down. Yeah. He's gonna get a ride home. Yeah, you're right. That is like the one time humans aren't just yeah. Evil. Con- contrast that with you know humans destroying the bur- uh, the original war on. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think we. Um, I think that's you know enough about the the leadership. But yeah, we let's talk about this interaction between humans and rabbits and ecology a little bit here the original warren sandalford warren i believe because all the places in this are actually real places that you can just go look at like he names the cities and like watership down is an actual place like you can go to it exists mm-hmm. um i assume it still exists i'm assuming it hasn't been bulldozed or something yeah uh, well hopefully um but like the towns he names and the rivers he names are real you can go find them anyway the sandalford warren uh, the, the vision that Fiverr has and that what does eventually happen to them is because the land that they live on has been slated for development, for housing, I assume, I think. And so the humans come and have to and kill the rat, destroy the rabbit colony and then bulldoze the land to start building houses. Mm-hmm. And from the rabbit's perspective, this is fucking terrifying. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I recommend you watch that scene from the 1978 movie so you can uh, give yourself nightmares. Yeah, I was about to say, that's, that's probably the most terrifying goddamn scene. So what happens is the humans plug up basically all the holes they can find in the warren, almost all of them, and then just pump some sort of poison gas into the rabbit warren uh, to kill the rabbits. And then the ones that make it out, they shoot. I don't know if this is like a normal strategy for destroying rabbit warrens. I'm guessing it's happened before. I'm assuming Richard Adams didn't just invent it entirely. I'm assuming this has happened at some point, but from the rabbit's perspective, like all their holes get clogged up. The air goes bad. Most of them die. few that escape get shot. And then they bring in a tractor to just tear up all the land and the one rabbit describes being able to see like the dead bodies of his former friends being churned up out of the earth with the land, which again, terrifying, terrifying. It is around the telling of this story as to what happens. The rabbits are sort of talking about why, you know, why did this happen? Cause they're accustomed to humans and some of the suggestions thrown out like, Oh, well they were mad that we were stealing from their garden. Or they were mad that we were doing this or that. And one of the rabbits, I think it's Fiverr, says, no, they killed everyone because we were in their way. And it's in this that they distinguish humans from all other allele, from all other enemies, in that humans don't kill the rabbits because they need to to live. 
They do it because they find rabbits inconvenient and a nuisance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty important point that, you know, the humans did this not because they needed to, but because we were just in their way. I'm surprised there's not more, um, you know, rabbit mythology about humans. You know what I mean? It's like, it almost seems like they could be, that'd be like some big, <laughs> some big like, oh, end of the world style shit. Yeah. I mean, a couple of the myths have humans in them. Mm-hmm. They never explain what the king whose garden Alakara steals, steals the, gets the cabbages from. They never actually even say what he is. Yeah, they never do. He does have animal servants, though, because they talk about their claws. But I don't, they don't explicitly say what kind of animal he is. The other thing is they talk about, when they talk about their enemies, is that, like, they understand other allele because they need to hunt to live. And so, like, they'll kill one rabbit and leave. Mm-hmm. Where humans are just like don't even need them, they just kill them for sport or yeah. for annoyance and destroy the environment. Or they'll do something particularly like sinister, which is the case with uh, what's the one rabbit leader's name? Starts with like cow, cowslip, cowslip, and his warren. The, war, the warren where they leave food out just to keep the warren around so he can snare some of them occasionally. Yeah. It's like none of their other enemies think like that, you know? Yeah, no. Humans are like a specifically terrifying. Yeah, like a dog or a cat will kill one because, well, dogs and cats are a bit more like humans at that point. It, it's interesting, actually, that the dogs and cats actually display somewhat characteristics more closer to humans mm-hmm. in, in the enemies. Well, and I think that's because of their proximity to people. So also, does neither Cowslip. Cowslip's yeah. Warren also shows way more like human-esque qualities because they like do of art, their... They do art and existential poetry yes. because their proximity to people. Their proximity to people and proximity to I do not know who is going to die next, uh, but we know someone will, uh, and we know it could be any moment uh, for any reason, and we do not know when, we just know that it will. So death is looming over us all. I'm going to sit here in my hole eating you know, food that he gave us, um, fattening myself up and fattening him, myself on purpose for the slaughter. Mm-hmm. It, ooh, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but there's like this interesting sort of the psychology of animals changes significantly the closer they are in contact with humans regularly. Mm-hmm. So, like, dogs are described as like, aside from humans, dogs are the only other allele that will kill multiple rabbits just because. Like that's the whole reason they get the dog at the end. They can't get another enemy because the other enemy would come and just like eat one and leave. They get the dog because the dog is recklessly destructive. And the cats, the cats, even though typically won't kill more than one, they will also just hunt for the sport of it. Cats are also way harder to control. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But but I'm saying again, the cats are like human, somewhat human connected creatures and hunt sometimes for food and sometimes simply for sport. But like none of the other enemies do this. And like you said, the cowslips Warren close to the humans ends up with this very depressed and weird and human like society. So there's clearly something going on there in the difference between nature untouched and nature in proximity to humans, creating a much more 
for lack of a better word, evil. Yeah, because they like you know destructive, sadistic version of nature. The closer it is to people. Yeah, there's like um, is this is this like a wholesale condemnation of do- uh, domesticity of domesticated animals in general? Because um, a lot of them are like cowslip. Honestly, when you think about it, it's like they're made completely dependent. They can't leave because if they do, they don't know how to live. Um, so they just have to kind of be and wait to die. It's an interesting point. I wonder if that applies to anything in the real world. Hmm. This idea that like you've become so dependent on the treats that are just given to you that it becomes inconceivable that you would leave because number one, where would you go? And number two, how would you survive? You don't have the skills anymore to survive without the treats being given to you. But what that results in is simply existing in a state of permanent ennui (laughs) while waiting to be murdered. Yeah, that's it's supposed to. That's yeah, that's pretty fucked. The whole cow slip situation is pretty fucked. I think even though it's not the most like viscerally terrifying, I think having your house turned into a gas chamber is the most viscerally terrifying thing in this book. But I think when you actually think about it, like somewhat more existentially cowslips Warren, I think is the most terrifying. No, it's the most <laughs> depressing. The most like emotionally like, Oh, actually. Oh. <laughs> and then, and the more you think about it, you're like, this is actually just really disturbing. It is. But like, again, I think there's probably some sort of message we could draw from that because I mean, you look at humans in the like, specifically humans in in you know in like the u.s or europe you know what i mean mm-hmm. these highly developed even though it's somewhat outdated language talking about developed versus underdeveloped you know what i mean um these sort of western um post-industrial countries that we have a population of people that are just largely dependent on giving receiving our treats and don't have any concept of surviving without them, despite the fact that it, we are being actively killed on a regular basis, specifically in this whole pan, you know, the whole back to work during the pandemic type oh, deal. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you could find a more accurate, like direct portrayal of the fact that like the system provides us with, with our treats, but also says some of you are going to die to keep this going. And then one's like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. That's good. And like good we're just ex- we're expected to have people die and just move on. And so I I do think that that the Cowslips Warren has a lot to say about how we live now particularly in pandemic times. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do it capitalism generally, but I think the pandemic time is a much more sort of specific lesson where it's like, yeah, you go outside, some of you are going to die from going outside. Also, you have to. Yep. Also, you have to. If you don't, no food for you. I think it's also a little bit more existentially terrifying because like an enemy like Woundwort is fightable. Yeah, that works. That works. You can, like, you can you know punch I mean? him. Like, you, can, you can punch Woundwort in the face. Bigwig does this repeatedly. Like, or like kicks him. Yeah. Well, sometimes <laughs> they claw. So like. The rabbits have I, claws. They have claws. Yeah. They've got little claws on their feet. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's what they use them to like dig and stuff. Oh, you're right. I just it didn't click in my head that that. Yeah, I mean it's it they're they're claws in the same way. You know they're like more like just toenails, but you know what? Oh I mean. yeah, I mean that's all claws really are, right? 
Yeah. Um, but so like wound war is an enemy that like you can square up with, you can like have a plan, you can punch him. It's, it's physical, it's visceral, right? An enemy like the farmer at Cowslips Warren is much more existential in a way. Like, obviously he's a real person, mm. but like the rabbits can't go out and kick him. <laughs> like they can't go out and defeat the farmer mm -hmm. and free themselves. The only possible freedom for them is to leave, is to leave the system that they're existing within. But there have been in it for so long that they don't believe that's even possible or they don't, they've deluded themselves into thinking that the, what the system they live in is the best actually. Yeah. This goes for both. This goes for both cowslip and the rabbit chief from the beginning. It's very similar. If you think about it, this is how it's always been. This is fine. Bro, Why we'll, would I we'll survive? What are you talking about? It's like, Oh, you know, some of you will die. That is a sacrifice that I am willing to make. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and again, all of this contrasts directly with like Hazel and his Warren who are specifically constantly thinking outside of what are the typical bounds of what I want to call rabbit thought. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the problems we've talked about are, are, are simply a lack of imagination essentially like they can't think wound warts rabbits can't think of a system that doesn't have a strong a strong guy at the top cowslips warren can't think of a world in which they don't have to deal with like snares all the time the the flaily can't think of a world in which his warren like moves because of a threat mm -hmm where Hazel's group is constantly being forced to think outside the box. They're constantly being forced to envision things that no rabbit has ever thought of before. Right. And that's a uh, part of the role of, I think we mentioned it before, some of the other, other rabbits like Blackberry and Fiverr who are constantly saying there is another way. Like there is something different that no one's tried before. And actually Hazel does have his own moment of that when his bright idea is hey maybe we should be friends with animals that aren't rabbits yeah yeah he does it twice <laughs> and it pays twice. off it pays off every time just like fiverr's visions it pays off every time it also gives us one of my like one of the best characters in the book which is kihar the seagull <laughs> you just like him because that's scandinavian <laughs> yes yes uh partly uh but so again to finish my point we're shown time and time again that the good guys and the people that survive and thrive are those that can imagine scenarios and organizations beyond the ones that everyone else is currently existing in. Mm. And I think that's a message that we should take to heart. And it works here both on practical and sort of theoretical levels for practical things. You know, you get questions all the time. Well, like, well, in the real world, talking about, you know, building a better world. You can question all the time, well, how will people be fed? Or how will we produce X? Or, you know what I mean? A very, like, discrete problem. Mm -hmm. The book has those. That's the, the the plank of wood that Blackberry discovers you can float on. And then later on, the idea of using a boat, right? Mm -hmm. These are discrete problems that no one has had to solve before, but that they need to to, to move on. 
and they think outside the box and they invent a discrete way of fixing this problem. At a more theoretical level, Hazel's the one who's, you know, envisioning a Warren that doesn't have Ausla that beat the shit out of you for eating at the wrong time mm. or envisioning being friendly with non-predatory animals that live around you because they have things to offer. Not just, it's not entirely altruistic. Obviously they are hoping oh, yeah, no. to receive, receive something. From even, even the concept of mutual aid isn't entirely mutual. Isn't that's something that I think a lot of people will just kind of gloss over. It's like the reason that you're helping other people is because other people will help you. It's yeah, like you help other people because it's the right thing to do. But if you build a society of that, when it comes your turn, someone will help you. Yeah, it's like yeah. the reason that mutual aid in, as Kropotkin would have said, mutual aid in animals even is a thing is because working cooperatively led to greater survival. It wasn't about, oh man, I will save you because it's good thing. It's like, it's I'll save you because it's a good thing that we have more people because that means there's a higher chance of all of us yeah. surviving. Hazel is literally doing Kropotkin's mutualism in nature or mutual aid in nature. Yeah. <laughs> he, sa- he, he saves a mouse. The mouse warns them later that, you know, tells them there's a farm or whatever, or no, that Kier doesn't build the farm, but like warns them later that the Efferfins have showed up. Yeah. And the, like, and the seagull is like, Hey, I found the other, found the does for them. Yeah. Kihar finds the farm and Ephrafa. Like Kihar, and then Kihar is instrumental in their like, I don't know, prison raid. Yeah, their weird plan. <laughs> their prison raid of Ephrafa. Like Kihar is instrumental. And again, it comes first off, the aid that he provides physically, like I went and saw the things or I helped attack the rabbits. Also his knowledge. Kihar is the one that understands what a boat is mm-hmm. or how a boat works. Well, I, I love the fact that he explains what the ocean is. Yeah, he does explain the ocean. And everyone's like, is... what the fuck? And Bigwig's the only one who's like, eh, he's probably telling, he's, yeah, he's, yeah, he's probably telling the truth. That is, that, that is the flip side of, we, we, uh, you know, we were down on Bigwig earlier for being sort of selfish and like not always being the best. One of other Bigwig's other great things is like the fact that he and Kihar are like best friends. Yeah. He's like, oh God, this bird is so cool. <laughs> Well, I think and the bird respects him because I think because he's the only one that doesn't seem as scared as the rest of the rabbits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but again, Kihar provides them with things that they could not have had on their own. Vision, like scouting, knowledge. These are all things that they receive because Hazel had the idea that mutual aid might be good. So again, between dis- like specific instances and sort of big picture ideas, the rabbits here, <laughs> I think are showing things that we should learn from. Not that like, I don't know, I'm going to go feed a seagull because he's going to show me where all the hot women are. Like, yeah, I, don't no, think that, was, I don't think that's how it works. The cooperation is, but it's a, it's a good thing. Yeah. That like they live in a world where these things are unknown. And once you introduce like a mutual aid and like, devolution of power they suddenly have the happiest nicest and coolest society in all of england well people people accidentally stumble into that conclusion all the time yeah you know it's like they don't know that that's what anarchists have been talking about for 150 years but you know for longer than that (laughs) at this point almost 200 and like at the end of the day it's like these ideas are actually, when you boil it down, just kind of 
they just kind of make sense, like kind of common sense almost. I mean, common sense is bunkus baloney nonsense, but it's like at the same time, it just, it's like, yes, helping people is good and helps you later. <laughs> you figured it out. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it again, like you pointed out, it's people that are sort of like stumbling into the fact that anarchism is a good idea because clearly Richard Adams is not writing some sort of like anarchist text clearly, but like from our perspective, all of the things that he describes as good are indicative of, of sort of anarchist principles. Yes. Like all of the things that his heroes do that are good are, and all the things that are presented as evil are the things that any, like any anarchist off the street would be like, yeah, that's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> like a strict hierarchy of, of soldiers policing the, pr- policing the populace at all times hmm. and like completely curtailing their freedom as to when they feed, how they feed, who they associate with, who they mate with, all those sorts of things controlled in sort of a military hierarchy. Jesus. So <laughs> it's trying to make Ephrafa seem like, uh, like what's his name's, thing from uh mad max fury road oh it's yeah. <laughs> kind of <laughs> it's like the only ones who can breed now breed with me and you <laughs> you now have your water oh <laughs> do not become addicted to the sylphlay for you will miss its absence yeah <laughs> you resented the absence of sylphlay so i that, yeah i just I, I find it very interesting uh that you know these are sort of the lessons you're drawing, even without reading that deeply into it about who the good guys are and like what they, what they believe in. We went a little off it. I want to go back quick just to point out that there is clearly a message in here that humans are bad for animals generally, unless you're specifically a pet creature. Yeah. And even then it kind of fucks with you. And you, yeah, and even when you're a pet, it really fucks up your psychology. Well, because then the the one the way that they present dogs in this, I am the lowest worm. I will be the most servile. It's, well, to be fair, that is a that is a rabbit interpretation of how they perceive dogs. Dogs. So it's yes. like the rabbits see dogs as being these servile servile worms and they they don't actually know how dogs think or act or any of that they just are going based off their their observations from the outside and they're just like dogs obviously just are like i am the lowest of the low i will i will yes i am i will be i will lower myself for you um i will i will will grovel for you To, to be fair we did effectively Breed that into them? Yeah, we did effectively create a whole nother species. <laughs> Those species and stuff, it's all, you know, weird. The lines between species are incredibly blurry. But, like, uh, we did essentially create an entire species that's just, like, you know, you put a dog in a room and a wolf in a room in, like, cages, and you put food just out of their reach. It's like the wolf will reach for the food and keep reaching for the food and keep reaching for the food and eventually just stop and not try anymore and just give up. And then lay down. But like the dog will st- keep pushing at the thing and then will stop and look at the person like. You can give me a hand here, hand bro. Here? You're going to give it to you're me? Give me... <laughs> it's like... Bro, bro you going to give me a hand here? <laughs> Which, that... Yeah, so Reminds... we effectively bred an instinct to, to look to people for food. 
for help. Yeah, yeah. for for assistance. But but no, I just what we're pointing out though is that like yeah, the dogs in this story are presented as how a rabbit would interpret dog behavior, <laughs> where they're like as being like free dogs, and you're you're like we're free rabbits. Like a, you, we're we're free, and you're like servile. You're like a weird right? servant. But I mean, talk about the psychology. You also have the psychology of the hutch rabbits that they rescue, who like it's clearly shown these rabbits have a different psychology because they've never there's been human pets their whole lives. They don't understand how the outside works. They don't understand how to survive yeah, that, or how to live. That one is a little fucked up because they're not like raising those rabbits for food. Um, I mean, you don't think so. Yeah, I was about to say. But I mean, anyone who's lived on a farm uh, yeah. knows that a pet a pet rabbit could become food. Yeah, I was about to say. It's like, you know, you raise an animal long enough. I, eventually, you know, the kids will be like, yay. And then the dad will be like, okay, time for dinner. I know a lot of people who like, you know, raised cows and, and pigs from like being little to being adults and then still killed and ate them. I don't so. I don't. I knew someone who did that with the turkey. They raised like a yeah. turkey from a chick. And I'm like, I, no, no, that would turn me vegan so fast. There's a reason uh, I did yeah. <laughs> change. I was like, there's I was reason, like if you put, reason I did change. If you put me in that scenario, I'd be like, like, there's a reason. There's a reason that they try and keep meat production as separate from the the world as possible and and then they just take severely you know it is there's another it's it's part of the reason that they uh take in mostly you know undocumented immigrants to work there because it's like the emotional strain (laughs) that goes into that job yeah let's uh this is the point this is the point where i you know i go on a tangent and like make some of our listeners angry and start calling me like a preachy vegan or something talking about the like absolute mental toll that is taken on slaughterhouse workers because of the cruelty to the animals and all these other things. But I mean, it's no, it's not a joke to say that my own personal sort of change from like giving up meat and now trying at least by and large to give up all animal products stems from the fact that I, in my mind couldn't, couldn't logically draw the line between pet and food well, yeah. in animals. Like I, I couldn't draw that line for myself. Like logically, like there's no argument I could make to make that line make sense. Uh, and so the only logical response for me was to simply not have to have that dilemma. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can say those hot rabbits were being taken care of, but they also still had their, freedom reduced to a box yes like and they still fucked with their sort of quote-unquote natural psychology because they you know didn't get to live the way that the way the nature sort of intended them uh, to live so another message of this book humans bad humans let's face it folks not that great if you're an animal living yeah. by humans uh, probably in, not in, good for in you. before someone comes in and calls you a mis- misanthropy uh calls you out for misanthropy and you're at misanthropy and you're like, uh, wouldn't, be, wouldn't be the first time. And you're like, hmm, uh, I've heard this before, but I don't think you can deny the objective harm humanity causes to most animal life. And this isn't this isn't even just a oh, like just a capitalism thing. Like obviously capitalism is a huge deal. Like it, it without that, you'd be looking at like ninety eight percent reduction. <laughs> in that sort of harm, that sort of willful mm-hmm. harm. But at the same time, um, 
Are you telling me that there are people out there who wouldn't be like, okay, I'm looking for a place. I'm just going to plop down and, 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 you know, stay for the rest of my life. Oh, there's some animals here. I guess I'll go five miles to the east. It's like, no, some of them will just be like, eh, let's just gas them out and set up camp here anyways. I mean, um, long, long before there were like states, like people were, people were hunting animals to extinction. Yeah. It's like we hunted the goddamn <laughs> like, woolly mammoth to extinction. I mean, no obviously thing. the ice age disappearing meant that they were less likely to survive anyways, but at the end, at the end of the there day, we still hunted d- them down. Numerous other species. So I think, again, even if Richard Adams didn't necessarily intend it, this book is somewhat from the animal's perspective, reinforcing the idea that living near people is probably bad for you. It's, like, it's Yeah. It's like, regardless of, of how you look at it, humanity, as much as there is a food chain and not a food web, there is a food web, obviously, but like, we are the most effective predators on, on planet Earth by a significant margin. Number one, baby. <laughs> by, by like an incredibly wide margin. Um, yeah, well, have you ever seen a tiger with a gun? I don't think so. It's like the next most effective predators on Earth are anything of the feline family. And it's like, like they're all solitary hunters. BRB, I'm going to Watership Down to give Blackberry a high point. Like we can have some rabbit supremacy. <laughs> just, I just giving giving Bigwig an AR. That is the end of part one of our conversation on Watership Down. Part two will be out next week. If you enjoy the show, you can follow us on social media. The links are down in the description as always. Also, you can sign up for our Patreon for just $3 a month. You get access to a couple bonus episodes every month where we talk about non-book things like video games or movies or whatever. Uh, Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bro. Are you fucking real, man? Come on.